Uh, Father, thanks for the time uh, with brothers and sisters around your word. And uh, Lord, might we um, demonstrate that um, your word is sufficient and adequate uh, for our needs. And um, Lord, how we pray that um, you will encourage us today, whether, whether we struggle with depression ourselves or whether we know someone who does or whether we just want to be equipped um, so that when you bring somebody into our life, uh, we, uh, we have your resources ready to go. Um, so guide us, help us, and especially, Lord, help us to be able to condense um, a weighty topic uh, down to a, a summary that can be um, sufficient for helping people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here's the actual exam question, and it's, uh, I probably should put this up here, so let me try this. The mic picks up better there. Um, Provide a biblical definition of depression. Describe manifestations of depression in both the inner and outer man. Explain the biblical factors that drive depression. Detail several biblical strategies. So what I'm going to do is kind of overview how we think about depression from a biblical standpoint, and I'm going to try to answer each of those parts along the way, you'll recognize that this question is in a series of questions. We ask a question about anger. We ask a question about anxiety, worry, and fear, and then also depression. And those are kind of the the three sort of typical life challenges that you're going to see. And, uh, and you know, depression's big. Um, all the stats I've seen, uh, not just clinically, but um, call it uh, just anecdotally, relationally, um, people are talking more about depression. They seem to be experiencing it more. And um, and even, have you noticed, like, even some of our, our younger generations that um, my experience is it's almost like you're, you're a bit surprised to find a young person that isn't struggling with it. And I don't know why that is, and we can talk, you know, sociology and cultural trends and stuff like that. But, but there, there is a, there is a noticeable, measurable lack of spiritual resiliency amongst younger generations. And what that means is, we ought to be looking for this problem, uh, almost and not expecting it, but just being mindful of it that we can come alongside and, and help, especially the younger generations. Um, in all of that, so, all right. With that in mind, let's uh, let's tee it up here and get going. Um, we know the experience of depression is one of real pain and suffering. We can read Lamentations three. We can read Job chapter three. We can look at Psalm forty-two, Psalm forty-three. Uh, we can look at um, uh, you know Paul's life and ministry, where he was despairing at one point, even of life itself. Uh, look at Jonah. Um, Lord, if it's going to be like this, just kill me. Um, I think of uh, one of my um, people that I've studied at length in in church history, a guy named William Cooper, who was a hymn writer. Uh, He wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. You may know that. Do you know the original title of that hymn was not God Moves in a Mysterious Way? The original title of that hymn is Conflict, Light Against Darkness. And he wrote that hymn as a season of depression was coming upon him one afternoon. Uh, and without going on and on and on about my friend John Newton and William Cooper, but um, he wrote that hymn 
the afternoon sun or the, it was actually um, it wasn't Sunday afternoon. It was the afternoon of the day John Newton introduced the hymn Amazing Grace to his congregation. So a little historical fact there. John Newton, as his pastor, walked with Mr. Cooper over three decades of depression and multiple suicide attempts. And uh, you want an example of what a, a true Christian friend is, get to know John Newton and uh, his long walk and friendship with William Cooper. But it's real. It's real pain. It's real suffering. You know, Maybe you haven't experienced depression before, and it's, it's tempting when you've not felt like that to go, that's just in their head. They're just kind of making it up. They just need to kind of... And there, there's a time for loving biblical admonishment, but we don't want to downplay the fact that this is a real issue. It's real pain and suffering. Um, this is just some background. We're going to wave our hands at it. Uh, the way the secular world thinks about depression... Uh, they divide it up between depressive disorders and mood disorders. You, know, you see bipolar is now classified as a mood disorder. Um, <clears throat> and uh, some of the new uh, new terminology here, uh, premenstrual dysphoric disorder is actually a new label with DSM-5 that came out a few years ago. But that's just kind of how the, the secular world thinks about different types of depression. Uh, you're not going to be tested on this, of course. But we do want to remember, especially when we're writing a question like this, we're trying to analyze it, that DSM labels are descriptive only. There's no etiology, there's no pathology, meaning if, if someone is diagnosed with a major depressive disorder label, that means that that person has fit certain criteria, certain um, observational, uh, experiential criteria. A major depressive disorder diagnosis or a bipolar diagnosis does not speak in any way to a fact of disease or a clear pathology or some sort of um, diagnostic um, concept that would explain, well, here's why that person is experiencing that and here's what we need to do about it. They're descriptions only. They're, they're labels only. And the diagnosis is made on the basis of the patient's um, symptoms explained to the practitioner and the physician's observations. There's no imaging or blood tests. So this is one of those things that... You know, sometimes we get confused about, you know, you don't go to a doctor, they draw blood and they say, oh, you're bipolar one, right? That, that in the psychological world, there is no imaging or blood tests that are used to make a conclusive diagnosis. The diagnoses are made on the basis of symptoms and observations alone. And so like, for example, for MDD there, the patient must experience five of the nine symptoms doing two weeks and they're not explainable by other conditions or substances and that the symptoms are to a degree that they are causing, quote-unquote, significant distress or impairment. So, again, very, very subjective. Not saying it's not real, not saying people don't really feel like that, but just the, the way things are diagnosed in the psychological world is very different than in a, a medical disease side of medicine. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting, uh, there's a, um, an article that came out about two years ago that... Uh, it was kind of like honesty in medicine. 25% of psychiatrists and over 65% of primary care doctors admit that half the time they don't use DSM criteria to diagnose depression. So now, a very, very experienced physician, you know, may not need to go down each one of them, right? But, but the, the point of the article was this was not representative of experienced physicians. The point of the article is that uh, many practitioners are punting 
when it comes to making these diagnoses and not actually following clinical criteria. And that may be in part why there is a overdiagnosis of depression disorders today. So what is depression? This gets to our definition, right? What are we even talking about when we say depression? Now you'll notice, <laughs> you'll notice that we immediately have challenges about this, right? If someone says, I'm depressed, you know, I've got two kids in college right now, I've got one in high school, and let's say, um, you know, one of my teenagers says, hey, dad, uh, you know, you do counseling at the church, right? My friend's really depressed, what do I tell him? And uh, last year when my daughter was a senior in high school, that's exactly what happened. She had a friend that was depressed. She reached out to my daughter. My daughter reached out to me. It's like, well, okay. And we talked about that. But, but one of the things you have to immediately think of is, what does that actually mean? So I'll give you some examples. You see these in your notes here. Depression might mean a diagnosis by a licensed professional based on current DSM criteria. And, of course, that may cover a wide range of experiences. But, but that's, that's a more clinical diagnosis done properly. Depression may also be a label that is self-assigned by the struggler, what I affectionately call GSD, Google self-diagnosis, right? You know, I got online, I read, and I go, oh, this sounds like me, and I make my own diagnosis. Um, or it might be a perceived state based on popular culture. In my daughter's case, if I were to go to her high school and poll a bunch of her friends and her friends' friends, like, they're all depressed, in their own mind at least, and that's just a function of being a 16-year-old girl, I guess. I don't know. But, and so it's this idea that I'm just thinking of myself in those terms. I'm not necessarily taking my feelings and, and charting them against actual diagnostic criteria. Um, so I might be self-diagnosing. I might just say, you know, she seems like me, so I must be depressed too. Um, and then, you know, it's just slang for sad or really down. And, you know, this is happening with anxiety, too. I was talking to Greg Gifford, uh, who's one of the professors at Masters University. And um, so let's rewind 50 years ago. And, and some of us were around 50 years ago. Some of us weren't. Some of us definitely weren't. Um, but, um, you know, 50 years ago, people didn't talk about being depressed for the most part. They're, they're you know, clinical depression, yes, maybe. But um, if someone was feeling busy, they would say, I'm feeling busy. If they were, let's add 20 years, so let's say you know, we're, we're 30 years ago now, it might be, I'm having a stressful week. I'm having a busy week. Well, now the language is changing where what we used to call busyness and stress People today call depression or anxiety, or anxiety usually. I'm, I'm so anxious this week. And if you talk to them, what they're really doing is they're using that word anxious to describe the busyness and the stress of a week where there's a lot going on. It's not necessarily anxiety the way anxiety is classically understood. So language changes, guys. We know that. And, and we all represent different generations here. You know, our, our young guys like Cooper back there... Um, you know, he's he's going to be ministering to peers that have a very different vocabulary than like me and Mr. Slaughter. Okay, so um, what do we mean by depression? You have to ask them, don't you? You have to ask them, what do you mean by that? You, you said you're, you're feeling really depressed. What do you mean by that? And then draw them out. Uh, help 
help get to know what they mean by that by asking questions and making observations. Now, in the Bible, depression, in my understanding, is kind of like a big bucket that may house many different things. So one of the things we have to do uh, in biblical counseling with depression is we have to unmask depression. We've got to take the mask of depression off, take the label off, and look behind it and see what's actually going on. The Bible actually doesn't use one term to describe the experience of depression. If you look at Lamentations 3, uh, Jonah 4, Job chapter 3, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, you look at all of those, you will not see the same language being used there. And even though we might say that the experience of depression is significant, Genesis chapter 4 with Cain, right? His countenance fell. The Bible describes the word fallen countenance as a way of describing depression. So you say, what's depression? Well, here's just a few options. In the Bible, you will see features of depression that result from all of these different experiences. So take Cain in Genesis chapter 4 as an example. Um, uh, You remember the story, right? Cain and Abel, they both bring sacrifices. God accepts Abel's sacrifice. He rejects Cain's sacrifice. And Moses, the narrator, says... Then Cain became very angry, and what? His countenance fell. And we look at that, and we go, okay, that's a very different experience of depression than what Jeremiah is expressing in Lamentations chapter 3 as he's watching the city of Jerusalem burn because the Babylonians have breached the wall. Very different, right? One is associated with destruction and loss of the temple, of the city. Um, Jeremiah's preached for over 40 years for the people to repent. They've not listened to him, and here's what God promised. Judgment is coming. That's very different than Cain, who has been personally rejected from his offering. And, and we, we, we can conject, uh, we, we don't know this for sure, but we, we can surmise that maybe he's looking at his brother going, what's the deal? Why do you accept his and not mine, right? So, again, very different experiences, even though it resulted in depression in both cases. Okay, so you've got to unmask depression and get behind that. As depression is unmasked, the nature of a person's depression can be biblically understood and appropriate care can be given. Now, thinking again about psychological labels, uh, labels can be unhelpful. Uh, I mean, they're helpful in one sense in that, you know, we can take all these different symptoms and say, well, that's OCD. You know, when, a, when a person has uh, persistent intrusive thoughts of an inappropriate nature and that leads them to feel a compulsion to find relief from those intrusive, unpleasant thoughts through some sort of repetitive and unhelpful behavior, that takes too long. So saying OCD is convenient and we all know what that means. So labels are, are helpful in that way, but they're unhelpful because they can flatten a person's experience. So, for example, um, uh, labels are unhelpful if they become a person's identity, right? I'm an OCD struggler. I'm an addict. My child has ADD. You know, we understand people take those labels and they wrap an identity around them, and that is inappropriate and unhelpful. Uh, it can flatten a person's experience. You know, I, I dealt with uh, two intense OCD cases in the same few months a couple of years ago post-COVID interesting it's interesting to watch what COVID did to counseling issues but um, and they were very different they both had intrusive thoughts they both had compulsive behaviors but if I if I just treated them the same 
because they both had OCD, I would have missed the unique features and contours of this person's experience that would have allowed me to help them versus this other person's experience. So a label can flatten the person's experience. Like, oh, I know this, I know what's going on, and then I'm, I'm, I'm dishing out solutions when I haven't actually gotten to know that person's unique struggle. Um, labels can be hel- unhelpful when they imply an etiology and often direct the course of treatment. Talked about that. Uh, labels introduce a worldview. Remember, guys, labels are not neutral. Labels are trying to convert you. <laughs> um, if, if your child, let's see, Let's say you're a school teacher, and you've got Johnny, and Johnny is Johnny on the run. Uh, he's just always busy, has trouble staying in his seat, doesn't listen very well, easily distracted. And Mama comes in in the parent-teacher conference and says, Johnny can't help it, he has ADHD. Um, the good part of that is the teacher saying, yeah, we see the sort of symptoms, behaviors that an ADHD label Describes. We say, yeah, no surprise there. The problem is, Mama is using that as if ADHD were a medical disease which necessitates some sort of special treatment or, um, or in the, in the most significant mode, basically saying, my child's not going to be able to follow the rules because he has this disease. And again, not, not every parent's going to say that, of course. But that, that's where a label is being misused because the, those labels are trying to convert you to a certain viewpoint of why those symptoms happen. And in the case of ADHD, the disease model is a very significant model represented today. Okay. Are we good, Lee? Okay. All right. So um, when it comes to depression, the most popular theory of depression that continues to reign today is the biological or medical model. Sometimes it's called the chemical imbalance theory. And um, and you know this, uh, it, the, the theory purports that depression is the result of chemical imbalance in the brain. Medications are prescribed, which said to fix that. I say medications. It, it might be a, a traditional script. Uh, in our day and age, you know, there's an herb, there's a vitamin, there's a... We understand in the medical world, we've got sort of traditional, and then we have alternative, natural, blah, blah, blah. But but, but the point is there's some sort of you put something in your body to fix this kind of thing, right? And that's going on in the biological chemical imbalance theory. They're typically going to prescribe some sort of antidepressant. But, you know, um, there's literature that says St. John's wort does the exact same thing somehow as... um, Zoloft. So um, again, it doesn't. Don't, don't think it's just drugs, right? There, there are there are other forms of I'm putting substances in my body that are said to fix the chemical imbalance today. Of course, there's problems with the theory. I've given you a series of um, quotes there. I won't read them all to you, but essentially what I'm trying to demonstrate uh, here is uh, you know, I'm not a medical doctor, but I'm leaning on medical experts here. And all of these experts are concluding that the chemical imbalance theory um, was a sort of urban legend of 40 years ago. It was never proven or established in the literature. In fact, um, we have enough data today to say it is not a viable theory. 
and that most researchers have largely moved on from it, recognizing that the way the brain works and brain circuitry and, and the way the systems work there is much more complicated than that little commercial you saw, though, oh, there's a little bit too, ma- too many neurotransmitters you know, between the synapse and then the prescription whatever fixes that and the person isn't depressed anymore. That the brain operates in a much more complicated fashion than a simple chemical imbalance that is addressed with a antidepressant. So again, I won't read all these to you, but it's pretty compelling. And uh, Stephen Stahl, um, uh, you know, you, you know you're a leading expert when you can go on Amazon and the actual textbook series used in neuropsychological programs throughout medical schools in our land is called the Stahl's Essential Series. So this guy knows what he's doing, and um, the quote there is really interesting to read about. Okay, So the point is, uh, this is not a theory that's viable. Now, you say, why is it so popular? I mean, I, you know, you've got ads on Facebook that are still purporting this is what causes your depression, right? Um, it, it's propagated because the pharmaceutical world and the alternative medicine world want to sell you stuff. And I'm not here to beat up on either one of those communities. I'm thankful that we have medical people and people that make medications that actually help a lot of people. But sometimes a theory that's unsubstantiated in the medical literature continues in popular culture, not because the science has established it, but because the people that are selling the interventions continue to make those statements. Okay, And again, we've got uh, Dr. Roberts, uh, one of our uh, elders at Grace Community Church, that's one of our medical consultants. Um, Dr. Steinman, who's one of our pediatricians here in our church. Uh, we lean on our medical people to make sure that what we're reading as biblical counselors is valid and, and correct. And, and those men and, and others on our medical advisory uh, folks would affirm these things. So, okay. Um, did you know neurotransmitter levels in the brain cannot be measured in living human beings? Do you know that? Um, They actually have technology today. It's very, 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 very expensive, and you can't just go and do it. They have some technology today that's starting to be able to do that now, but you can't do that. Now, I know you've got a friend who said, oh, I went on Amazon, and I got a neurotransmitter uh, uh, test kit. You know, you, you you pee in the cup, you send it in, and they send you a report that says, see, here's your neurotransmitters. Uh, you, you can do that. You can buy that on Amazon. The problem is that's measuring the neurotransmitters in your body reflected in your urine, not the neurotransmitters in your brain. You say, why is that? Because we all learned in anatomy physiology way, way back in high school that there's this thing called the blood-brain barrier, right? So the chemical realities in your brain are different from the chemical realities in your body because God made in his design a system of separation between those two uh, systems. Okay, So your neurotransmitter levels, levels in your body do not reflect the neurotransmitter level, levels necessarily in your brain. Interesting. Uh, so why is this propagated? Well, because if you give 50 to 75, if you give people that are uh, depressed an antidepressant, about 50 to 75% of people will improve in some way. Um, we know that that could be because the antidepressant is actually doing something beneficial. It could be. Actually, research continues to show that CBT, ECT, and even placebo are about as effective as antidepressants in treating uh, a clinical depression. So if that's true, 
it's not it's not the targeted chemical whatever that drug is doing uh it's something else and um again when when you hear that don't hear people with depression are making things up and it's just in there no 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 it's it's a real suffering but when we talk about interventions we recognize that there's there's not one intervention that always works and, and even there's many things that help people to feel better um you guys saw this article. This is a little bit old now, um, but it continues to be uh, demonstrated in the literature that um, Sharon Begley, uh, leaning on research done, uh, her article in Newsweek from years ago, basically concluded that antidepressants are nothing more than expensive Tic Tacs because most of the... Essentially, in the people that improve on antidepressants, people on placebo showed similar results. So the idea is it's not the drug itself that's helping feel people feel better. It's the fact that they're having something given to them that's said to improve it. And that's the same with uh, the ECT and, and the CBT and um, all of that. So And again, don't hear, oh, you're saying my depression isn't real, my suffering isn't real. No, no, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is the treatments draw suspicion on the theories. And so... Uh, we want to be careful about that. As Christians, the biological model is really inconsistent with the biblical view. Let's say we didn't have modern science. As Christians, how do we think about this? We reject the medical model of depression because it is inconsistent and incompatible with biblical anthropology. The Bible does not teach that you and I are nothing more than a biological system. We are more than glands and neurons and organs and a nervous system and a brain, or more than that, right? God made people body and spirit, right? Outer man, inner man. And those are united together as one person. So yes, we do have biology. We do have physiology. We do have physical components to us. But those components are linked to an inner man. And when we talk about depression and other spiritual realities, what we're talking about are things that originate in the inner man. So... I'm, I'm going to struggle with depression, not because my body has a problem, but because there's something going on in my spirit, in that inner man, and that is reflected then in my biology. Okay, You guys have had biblical psychosomatics, so you understand that. So if we, we need to really think wisely about feelings. The Bible teaches there are two types of feelings. There are somatic feelings and affective feelings. Somatic feelings, affective feelings. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 4 um, and, and just demonstrate this. Again, you, you know this. Um, but uh, the, actually in context, we're looking at Jesus and he's been fasting for 40 days prior to the onset of his ministry, his public ministry. Chapter 4, verse 2, and after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, then he became hungry. Jesus, fully God, fully man, in his humanity, became hungry because he hadn't eaten for over a month. Um, that feeling of hunger is what we call a somatic feeling. Somatic from the word soma, body. Um, you and I experience feelings related to the operations of our outer man. Things like hunger, sleep, when we're physically sick, those realities are caused, those feelings are caused by dynamics going on in our bodies or our outer man. We call those somatic feelings. 
Secondly, there are a, there's another category of feelings. We could call those affective feelings, affective feelings. And those are feelings associated with the operations of the inner man, the soul, the spirit, the heart. If you're in Matthew, we can just flip the page over to Mark chapter 6. In context, Jesus is talking about... Um, oh yeah, this is where Jesus walks on water. I was thinking it was a different passage. Uh, Mark chapter 6, uh, they see Jesus, right? And he's coming to them, walking on the water. They think he's a ghost. Verse 50, and they immediately saw him, and they were terrified. Well, where did those feelings of fear come from? From their heart, from the inner man, right? Their spirit, because that's not the same as I'm feeling tired, I need to go to sleep. That is... I'm in a situation, I've evaluated the situation and concluded there is something dangerous, there is something threatening. And when that happens, my heart responds with fear and my body has a physiological uh, component that accompanies that heart response of fear. Does that make sense? You know, someone in fear, you can put a blood pressure cuff on them and see elevated blood pressure, elevated heart rate. Um, you know, we can, we can do all sorts of, you know, physiological tests and it's like, yeah, you're not in a normal state. That's not because the body initiates fear, the heart, the spirit initiates fear and the body follows with an accompanying, accompanying physiological response. And, and that, that's actually what an emotion is. Uh, emotion, really, an emotion is just a heart response Right? That's, that's where it starts. An emotion starts as a heart response, but then it leads to some sort of body-related feeling. Right? Some body, some body component. And again, in depression, in anxiety, in fear, um, joy and happiness, grief, there are physiological components to that. But those physiological components are are the result of what the heart is doing. They are not the cause of things. Does that make sense? So when we think about emotion, uh, this is my uh, my water molecule looking thing here. It's not. When we think of an emotion, we're just thinking it's a heart response coupled with that, that physiological feeling, that, that affective feeling, right? An emotion is is a heart response that then your body then responds to in that way. And what's interesting is, you know, if you're, let's say you're having a panic attack and I can get a blood pressure cuff on you and it's like, oh, you've got elevated blood pressure, elevated heart rate. Um, if we could measure, you know, the adrenaline in your body from that fight or flight, you know, we could say, man, physiologically, there's some stuff going on. But that physiological stuff is not sinful or righteous. That's just your body responding to what your heart is doing. But what I'm doing in my heart is of a moral nature that is of a righteous or sin nature because how i respond let's say to fear depends on what i'm thinking trusting responding hoping worshiping depending leaning turning wanting obeying and so that is either going to be sinful or righteous depending on what's driving my heart to respond okay so when we think about depression we really have to look backward and think about the nature of feelings and emotions 
Um, <clears throat> okay, that makes sense. So depression, even if, even in depression, if we're seeing physiological factors, we're recognizing that um, the heart is key to understanding what's going on there. Now, speaking of body issues, let's talk about just depressed feelings. Not, not depression, let's just talk about depressed feelings, feeling down, feeling blue, feeling not feeling yourself. Where can those come from? Where can those come from? Well, they can come from body issues, can't they? Uh, hypothyroidism, Parkinson's disease. I got a, I a, a friend of mine who's going through Parkinson's right now, and he has days where he does not feel himself. He just feels down. Um, and that is a function of the disease that he's facing. We know that depressed feelings can be the result of certain medications. The side effect of medications can help, can contribute to people feeling down. Body changes, hormonal issues, um, menopause, menstrual cycles, uh, seasons of life change, you know, those sorts of things where your body is changing hormonally can be a scenario where a person feels different or feels down in some way. Uh, we also recognize uh, that can happen if there's body neglect or overload. People that don't sleep, you know, they are too busy, they are too stressed, they're neglecting their body, and their body is beginning to respond saying, I can't keep up with this. I can't keep going if you're not going to treat me like this kind of thing, right? So there are legitimate body issues that contribute to depressed feelings. Now, Spiritual issues, we're talking about you know, the heart responses, spiritual issues are going to directly or indirectly always be in play. So let's talk about my friend that has Parkinson's disease. He's having a day where his limbs aren't functioning and he's, he's more stiff than usual and he just, he just feels kind of blah that day. Well, that's, that's a function of the disease, right? But as he wakes up in the morning and he realizes that's what his body is doing, his heart, his inner man has to respond to that and uh, he can go a couple of different ways he he can be oh no here we go again i'm stiffer i'm tighter i don't feel great and in his heart he can turn away from god to a very dark place can he and he can begin to wallow in those feelings he can begin to tell himself things that aren't true and unhelpful he can withdraw from relationships right or he could also turn toward God. It could be one of those days where, again, my, my, my limbs aren't working. I'm stiff and I feel bad. I, I, I need to turn to Scripture today. I, I need to surround myself with the people of God. I need to be really, really careful what I'm believing in my mind and take my thoughts captive to make sure that I'm not entertaining unhelpful thoughts that lead me to feel worse than I already do. So you see, spiritual issues, the heart is always in play even if there are body factors that are contributing to the depressed feelings. Does that make sense? So, um, so be, be mindful of that. And recognize you don't have to know the exact cause of those depressed feelings in order to minister help to the person. You know, maybe they have an undiagnosed disease and they just don't feel themselves. Well, you don't need to know that to be able to help them to hope in God and turn to God and find the resources in God and the people of God and the spiritual disciplines and taking thoughts captive. and You don't have to know the exact cause to encourage your friend to turn to God. Uh, now, if there's an undiagnosed disease, it, that would be helpful to know, right? Which is why in counseling, we're going to send them to a physician to make sure that uh, the onset of the symptoms isn't related to an actual medical issue. Okay. Um, now let, let's jump into the text here, and this gets into you know that, that's kind of you know some background for you. But 
in thinking about the actual diagnosis, not diagnosis, in thinking about the actual analysis of depression and how we want to answer these questions on our exam, uh, there's a couple of things that we would want to make because uh, you know we've, we've talked about some of this. We've talked about a, de- a definition. We've talked about physical factors, so outer man, inner man. Outer man, we might say what? What, what are some outer man manifestations of depression? What would you see? Yeah. Yeah, pain, tired. Maybe talking about themselves. Other outer man stuff. Yeah, they, they kind of look down. They, they Maybe they look kind of disheveled, not like they didn't really take care of themselves that morning and um, maybe a little sleep deprived. Yeah. Or sleep too much. Or sleep too much, yep. So, and then inner man, we could say, you know, talking about themselves, maybe focusing on that, focusing on on uh, unhelpful things. Uh, we can see them, you know, a loss of hope. We can see um, uh, struggling to believe truths about God and embrace them, uh, withdrawing from relationships, um, you know, sleeping too much or too little. Irrational thoughts. Irrational thoughts. Yeah, so so outer man, inner man, and we'll look at some of those features here as we look at some biblical models and biblical examples here. But when we move to think about what are some of the the factors that drive depression, let's look at back at Genesis chapter four again and Cain and Abel. Uh, the 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 verse I want to direct your attention to is Genesis chapter four, verse uh, six. Right, so so Cain has become angry, the text tells us, and his countenance fell. Then God, if you want to learn how to do biblical counseling, watch what God does. Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Just stop right there. In asking that question, God expects Cain to have some understanding of his own emotion. Isn't that interesting? If depression was always caused by a medical disease, God's question to him doesn't make any sense at all. You know, if I said, um, why do you have a cold? You know, why do you have the flu? You'd be like, uh, I don't know, Pastor Keith, it just happens every fall in North Texas, right? It, right? There's, there's not some sort of moral, spiritual thing that they've done that results in the cold or the flu. But God's question to Cain verifies for us that this is a spiritual heart response. This is something that he can explain. And uh, if we look back at the text there, he says, uh, why is your countenance... Interesting, um, if you look at the secular literature, about 80 to 90% of depressed persons can tell you why they're depressed. 80 to 90%. Over 80% of the time, it's because of some loss in their life. And in fact, that you know, people that are thinking about a more biblical view of sadness, often what we're seeing in depression is what the Bible calls normal sadness over a true loss. And that's not bad. You know, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, over the, the hardness of heart. God looked in Genesis chapter 6 at, at the, his creation. It, it's just, you know, 
a dozen generations old, and he says every intent of the thought of man is only evil wickedly, and, and God grieved over the sin of people. Uh, grief and sorrow is a godly response sometimes. We have to have a category that says sor- uh, uh, sadness and grief are a godly thing. They're not something to avoid or run from or fix all the time, right? So sometimes what we're calling depression might be normal sadness or grief because of appropriate loss. Um, When you lose someone you love and are indifferent to it, that's not a sign of spiritual health. Um, So anyway, uh, uh, the the point here, uh, look what God, God says to him. He says, if you do well, will not will not your countenance be lifted up meaning Cain you can do something now that will change your depression and if you do well right what what does God mean if you will respond rightly if you will respond in faith toward me if you will take your thoughts captive and land on what is true your feelings are going to change for the better And what God is demonstrating here through Cain is that affective feelings, right, when we feel depressed, those follow how we are interpreting, evaluating, and responding to life. That's why you can have two people, even in the same household, that go through the same experience and they have very different emotional responses. It's not just environmental it's how they're responding in their heart to what's going on in the environment. And that's based on, the Bible tells us, how we're interpreting, how we're evaluating, how we're responding. Effective feelings are designed by God to be the indicators of the heart's inner workings. They're meant to provoke introspection and evaluation. That's what God tells Jonah. God God tells, you remember, Jonah is all upset because God relented concerning the destruction of Nineveh because they repented. And, and Jonah gets angry. He says, God, I just knew you would do this because you're compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. You quote, quoting Exodus 34. I just knew you would do this because you're full of compassion and mercy. And, uh, and he says, if this is going to be what it's like, just kill me because I can't put up with this. And, and you know, you kind of, those of us that had children, we, when our children were little and, you know, your three-year-old's having a meltdown and you have to kind of go, you know, kind of get down on their level and kind of put your arm around them. And, you know, what they're doing is over the top and, and toddler y like a toddler. And that's exactly what Jonah was doing. He was acting like a spiritual toddler. Um, now, to understand how horrible Nineveh was and what they did to the people of God, we can be sympathetic toward Jonah. But he's got this meltdown. And God, you remember what God does? He doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't call him to repentance. He doesn't bring a lightning bolt from heaven to, to, you know, take care of the disobedient prophet. He asks him a question. Do you remember what he asked him? Jonah, do you have good reason to be angry? It's the same thing we do in parenting, right? We're asking questions to draw the child into a conversation that we hope will allow us to point to what's going on in their heart and a better way to respond. Um, but those effective feelings, as demonstrated in, in by God with uh, Cain in Genesis 4, Jonah 4, later on Jonah 4, 9, are designed 
to provoke introspection and evaluation. Jonah's anger and depression was supposed to be a reminder to him that there were things going on in his heart that he needed to address. God intends for believers to live by faith, not feelings. Right? That's Hebrews 11, right? Trust in Christ and obedience to his word should guide and direct the Christian. Feelings should not become the governor or motivator of the Christian life. That is so hard not to do that, isn't it? But living by faith means I'm going to act and respond based upon what God tells me, not based upon how I feel. What happens in depression, we'll get to the the picture here in a minute with the spiral of depression. What happens is people get into a cycle where their feelings become so overwhelming they they wrongly believe that they must follow them. And the more we follow our fallen feelings, the more tightly the spiral becomes in depression and eventually in despair. Which is why the Bible is going to model for us in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 and command us in texts like Philippians chapter 4 to talk biblically to ourselves instead of listening to our fallen feelings. Uh, I put the the Lloyd-Jones quote up there that every preacher I know overuses because it's awesome. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? A healthy Christian is one who is constantly talking to himself regarding the things of God the truth of God, the promises of God, the character of God, the gospel promises. And in light of those things, instructing our own hearts to respond in a certain way. A immature Christian, an unbeliever, are people that let their own fallen feelings and emotions direct what they do and how they respond. So spiritual health needs were moving in that direction. And Jay Adams and Ed Welch say something very similar to Lloyd-Jones in spiritual depression there, okay? So here's the diagram. You guys have seen this in track one, but this is kind of how this... That doesn't work very well. So here's where we start. Something happens, right? There's some circumstance, some loss, some cancer diagnosis, some my child did this, my spouse did that, some occasion usually for grief or sorrow or loss. Maybe in Cain's case, jealousy, comparison. Um, how are we going to respond? We can turn to God by grace through faith, looking for God's glory. That's a faith-oriented response, right? We, I turn to God and I say, Lord, help me. I'm struggling. This, this hurts. This is hard. Help me to trust you. Help me to believe you. Help me to respond to these painful feelings by following your counsel. And uh, we do that by grace through faith for God's glory. And that brings hope because when we turn to God, we find the hope that he has for us, don't we? And that, that's what happens in, in Psalm 42. Hope in God, for I will again praise him. The, the psalmist is wrestling with his own heart saying, turn to God, hope in God, remember God. It's going to be okay. You will again praise him. This darkness is not forever. Um, on the other hand... The alternative is to turn away from God, to isolate, to withdraw within, uh, following my feelings instead of following uh, the the tenets of of God. That's called a a fleshly response in Scripture. And I'm really, even though I might see it, I might not see it in the moment, I'm really seeking 
to please myself by doing what feels right instead of turning to God to ask what is right. And where is help really found? And the end result is an ungodly response as I turn away from him. That makes me feel guilty, discouraged, despairing, makes me feel worse. So then what? I I have another moment where I have another decision to make, another opportunity, and I follow my feelings again. And that just... As I continue to follow my feelings, my, my, my actual sadness, despair increases to a place where I am in the darkness. Okay? Um, and uh, Dr. Stuart Scott uh, uh, developed that chart based on a chart that a. Ad- J. Adams developed. So everything's kind of borrowed here. But, but that, this is helpful because when people are depressed, all they know is they hurt and they want relief. And one of the ways we care for them, this gets into the fourth part of our, our question, you know, what, what strategies that are we going to employ? One of the strategies is helping them to see this is what's going on. We want to help them to turn to God rather than turn away from them. Uh, in the previous slide here, another strategy is to talk to ourselves instead of listening to ourselves, focusing on what's true, right? Um, another thing we do as a strategy in depression we don't want people to follow their feelings, but we do want them to listen to their feelings because listening to depression, listening to what depression is saying, so to speak, is really insightful as to what the heart issue is going on. So Ed Welch gives us several examples in his little booklet on depression. Sometimes depression is saying, I'm afraid, I'm guilty, I lost something, I need something, I'm angry. Again, you have to unmask it, right? You have to unmask it because depression might be masquerading under any of these premises. So we've got to figure out what is the unique heart struggle in depression. So one of the strategies you're going to use to help with depression is what is your depression saying about your heart? What can you learn about that? We want to help them as another strategy, help your counselee to develop a biblical view of sadness and grief. Uh, like we recognize, right? God experiences sorrow and grief. Jesus, the Messiah in Isaiah 53, surely our griefs he himself bar, bore and our sorrows he carried. The perfect son of God grieved and dealt with sorrow. Um, and, and so we, we have to have a category that says some sorrow and grief can be a good and godly thing, a, a God-glorifying thing, um, even if the emotions may be unpleasant in some way. God has a purpose for sadness, right? It it turns our heart to him. That would be the goal, that your counselee would develop a biblical view of sadness and grief, and it would turn their heart more to God in help. Uh, Charlie Hodges kind of noting, um, again, how things change over time. He he writes, 500 years ago when people suffered and sorrowed, they didn't think of it in terms of disease. They called it sadness and sorrow. But when our culture encounters sadness, it sees depression. So that's a cultural kind of reality that's changed over the years that uh, is um, is insightful there. So what's another strategy you're going to use to help somebody? Another strategy is in your counselee, look for both suffering and sin. Look for both suffering and sin. Uh, we recognize that, like, for example, in, in Jeremiah's case, much of his depression was fueled by the sin and idolatry of the people of God and eventually the destruction that God brought by the Babylonians in 586 with the destruction of Jerusalem and the the Babylonian captivity. Um, Jeremiah experienced suffering. Can you imagine 
He preached for over 40 years. And nobody listened. You want to talk about feeling like a failure? Um, God told him back in Jeremiah chapter 1, just like he told Isaiah, you're going to go preach and the people aren't going to respond. Are you in? And um, so we, we can say, you know what? That, that, you know, you're talking to somebody that's depressed. They just lost their spouse of 57 years. Of course they're going to be sad. Of course they're going to grieve. That, that's a good and godly thing. It, it reflects the love they had and the gift that that person was and, and all of the memories and all of the dynamics, the children, the vacations, the, the camaraderie, the unity, the intimacy, all of that. Of course you're going to grieve. That's a godly thing. So look for suffering in depression and recognize that depression is not always an occasion to find some sort of sin that's hiding under there. Okay. However, we know that loss and grief and, and a godly sorrow can be a, a temptation or occasion for an unhelpful, god, ungodly response, can it? Right? And, um, and so that's where we have to come alongside our hurting friend, encouraging them, showing them the hope of the gospel in their suffering, but also helping them to point out the dangers of where that sorrow and grief can go if they're not careful. Have you noticed people that have had horrible loss and grief are very vulnerable? Very vulnerable. And as the church, we ought to say, there's a person in danger. What can we do to help them? What can we do to, to rescue, to, to bolster, to walk alongside as they grieve, as they sorrow appropriately, but helping them to avoid veering off into something that's an ungodly response um, because of that vulnerability. Also look for spiritual accomplices. Remember that depression rarely works alone. You know, it, it's a... I don't know. It's it's one of those things that you it might present as depression, but expect that behind depression is a team, a team of spiritual accomplices, things like anger, misplaced trust, believing lies, hopelessness, shame or guilt, laziness, self hatred, fear and anxiety. And I've given you again. We won't look at all those verses, but I've given you some some texts there where you can see all of those text there guys connect something of sorrow and depression with another spiritual problem so help identify that in terms of counseling procedure you're not going to get into this so much uh, in the answer other than to say here's some of the strategies obviously you want to you know love the person care for them gather lots of data if there's suicide uh, suicidal thoughts we, we want to take appropriate procedures for safety ensure a recent medical checkup to, to rule out any true medical factors that might be contributing to depressed feelings. We want to point them to the hope of Christ, uh, the God of hope, right? And ensure that they have trusted Christ. Uh, we want to introduce them to Christ. If, if that, yeah, I mean, strategy number one, do they know Christ? No? Share Christ with them. Because he, uh, he is the source of hope in that. Um, another strategy might be to introduce them to biblical stories that connect with their experience of depression. The Bible has many, many songs in the Psalms, uh, poetry in the book of Lamentations, narrative like in Job, that, that connect the experience of depression of real people to the provisions of grace that God provides for us. And often that's a way to care for them. Um, help them to see that the Bible voices the same experiences that they're experiencing. 
And that helps them make a connection to God's word and the provisions he has for them. Um, the spiritual disciplines would be a good provision. Get, get them in the means of grace that God's going to use to help them. In depression, people tend to pull in. They withdraw from the church. They withdraw from doing other things that are, that are hard. And the end result is we have to help them come out of their shell, re-engage with the church, re-engage in spiritual disciplines because those are the means that God's going to use to help them. And sometimes, sometimes a person that's depressed is not getting better not because God doesn't have means available, but because they're not utilizing those means. Um, so facilitate connections there to ensure active involvement. Minister biblical truths to help frame up a biblical understanding. And then based on the needs, begin to prioritize uh, those spiritual uh, dynamics there. What's behind the mask of depression? And then just remember um, those two buckets, right? If it's a suffering issue, we offer biblical encouragement. If it's fallen into a sin issue, we call for biblical repentance and encouragement that God can forgive and change them. Okay, so remember our list. So you're looking for those sorts of things behind the depression. As you identify it, you say, okay, what's really going on here is self-hatred. Okay, so now we're going to address self-hatred. The depression is the symptom. Self-hatred is really the heart. And then counsel them accordingly. And then just remember, uh, this is this is going beyond the, the question now, but remember that there are other topics that might be helpful to develop. Um, all of these can be additional strategies. Uh, I might include a couple in your answer. I think taking thoughts captive is a really important strategy. Thankfulness is a very important strategy. Um, seeing trials through the lens of grace. That's a perspective we want to help people to have. Um, anyway, so... You're saying there's no way I can do this in a page and a half. I know, I know. But uh, I'm giving you more information that you need so that when you sit down to write, um, you have plenty of material and you can say, okay, here are the strategies that I need to do. Here are the factors that drive depression. Here's the outer man and inner man manifestations. And here's how we're thinking about a definition of depression. Okay, some wonderful resources there. Um, I, oh, yeah, some homework here. You won't get into homework on this one. but uh, And then some wonderful resources. Uh, of all of these, I have found Ed Welch's little booklet really helpful. Um, I think uh, Heath Lambert's um, uh, uh, postpartum depression talk in there uh, in the chapter in Counseling the Hard Cases, really helpful. Uh, Dan Wickert, that's an older audio, but uh, Dan's got some really good material on that. If you haven't read Good Mood, Bad Mood, you'll find that helpful. Anyway, lots of good stuff there, but I, I would start with the with the mini book, and then you can work up to something more significant. If you ha- if you haven't done anything, that's where I would start. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for uh, your provision in the midst of the darkness. Thank you that uh, Christ meets us and does some of his best work. Uh, when we feel alone and when we feel isolated and and dark. Um, Thank you uh, for your kindness and grace that Jesus bears our sorrows and griefs and that we find in him a sympathetic high priest. Uh, Lord, give us grace as we write the answers. This is a big question. Uh, Lord, I pray for grace to be able to summarize all of this in one's own words and to create a strategy that will be helpful to someone who's struggling. Thank you now for the lunch we're about to have and the fellowship that goes with it. Uh, Give us stamina for the afternoon, and we thank you again for the joy of being together this weekend. In Jesus' name, amen.